I picked or how many of the songs Gary picked, uh, but those were perfect for my heart this morning. Um, you know, this is, has nothing to do with my sermon. This is just a freebie for you guys. But we're approaching the Reformation Day uh, time, October 31st, 15, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg, basically sparking the Reformation. I mean, really, he made a Facebook post and it went viral and it turned into something he did not anticipate. But he did end up leading to this Reformation uh, time. And one of the things I like about Martin Luther is how real he is with, with people. And his barber had asked him, how do I pray? And Martin Luther gave him a fourfold instruction in how to order his prayers. And I've always found that like extremely valuable. And so... Um, does someone have a hymn book? Because I forgot to grab it on the way up. I wanted to take one of our hymns from earlier, A Shelter in a Time of Storm. Silas, can you bring it to me? Thank you, helper. All right, so 353. And you know, Typically, I do this with, with Scripture. But in 353, it says, A Shelter in a Time of Storm. And, and so his fourfold instruction that he gave um, and I remember it with an acronym, all right? So I-T-C-P is the acronym that I use to remember it. I is instruction. So as I look at our song, the Lord's our rock, in him we hide, a shelter in the time of storm, I draw out the instruction from that verse. Well, the first thing I see is that the Lord is our rock. Right? He is a, a refuge, a place to hang on to. If I'm in a storm and I'm shipwrecked, I want to hang on to a rock. And so I begin to think about the instruction there. The instruction is, I need to be hanging on. And the second thing is thanksgiving. So I is instruction, T is thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving I have, you know, thank you God for being my rock. Thank you for being the place that I can cling to in the time of storm, uh, which is sometimes how this week has felt. A time of storm, right? So I, I begin to pray through that. And then the, the third thing, so I-T, so instruction, thanksgiving. C is confession. Lord, I have not clung to you like I should this week. You have been the rock, and I haven't gripped you like I should have. I, should, I did not throw myself on you as quickly as I should have. Right? I begin to confess. So we have instruction, thanksgiving, confession. And then P is petition. I ask the Lord to be my rock, to, to, to stay with me, to, to help me remember to cling to him as quickly as I can. And so that fourfold strand of prayer has been so enriching to my uh, devotional life, to my prayer time. You can take any hymn, you can take any psalm, you can take really anything and begin to meditate and pray that to the Lord. And so that's, that's a freebie. Um, it's something that I def definitely needed a lot this week and was reminded of it uh, as we sang through these songs. And it's so true that our, our music, we sing our theology, and it's a reminder. The fact that you can remember this song, and you probably won't remember my sermon, says a lot about how important music is to us. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll actually get this show on the road. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
Have you ever been fascinated by the fact that humans are community-type people? Right? We start societies of all sorts. We start with clubs. We gather together for various reasons. Uh, sometimes it's, it's for the purpose of a hobby or an interest. Sometimes it's for edification or, or training. Sometimes we gather together for the purpose of just uh, bearing each other's burdens. One group that gathers together on a regular basis is the Army National Guard. They have these things called armories in various locations where they gather and they get training. They get uh, trained in their tasks, their warrior tasks and drills, as we would say from the Soldier's Creed. Right? And we begin to learn how to do our job and not forget what it is as we go back to our civilian life. And then, then once a year, you go for two weeks of training. Sometimes you get called up, like our dear friend Owen here, who uh, has been here for almost a year. He's going to be leaving soon, and, and we're sorrowful for that, but joyful for him to be home. Um, but we have these regular rhythms of training, and so there's this gathering. And the question I want to ask you today is, have you ever ran into someone who was devoted to something? Devoted is a pretty heavy word. I mean, truly devoted. You know, maybe it's a sports team. Maybe every Sunday they have to put on that jersey. They have to sit at a certain spot. I'm not going to pick on anybody, David. Uh, you have to sit at that one spot, right? And you have to root your team. And you have to eat the potato chips with the right guacamole or whatever it is. Right? They have all these rituals of religion for you devoted to your sports team. Rain or shine, win or lose, they will be rooting for their team. It's kind of a fanatic type of loyalty, isn't it? There's a level of fanaticism that happens. But, you know, I see people with a hobby that is so all-encompassing that it takes all of their time. They are collecting coins, or they're collecting stamps, or I'm not going to pick on Richard, they have a train club, right? It takes their time. And you ask them one simple, innocuous question, and they will school you on their favorite subject. And that's a natural tendency of human beings. We have this tendency to become devoted to things, to sports, to hobbies, to collections. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it in moderation, but I want you to think with me for a moment on motivations. Why do we do that? What is the purpose? Well, I think they're enjoyable for some. For some, it's a distraction. Maybe for some, it's just something to do. But they are not eternal, are they? They will let us down. They are not permanent. Uh, Augie has a wonderful testimony of how many things that he got interested in in his lifetime. Uh, and he really spent time and money in all sorts of really interesting hobbies, um, bringing quite a lot. And he came to the realization at one point in his life, and I hope you don't mind me sharing your story, but at one point in his life, he came to the realization these are not eternal things. And so they began to take more of a side aspect of his life, and he became devoted to the main thing. And so we see that in our passage this morning, we have a Holy Spirit-empowered community that's devoted to the risen Christ. And we have the foundation of the New Testament community. So kind of the phrase to help remember this sermon is that we have a Spirit-empowered Christ-centered community. 
and we have these foundations. So let's read of these amazing developments. So if you have your Bibles, we're in chapter 2 of Acts, and we're going to move through uh, verses 42 through 47 this morning. It says, they, are de- they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, or some translations say fear, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's lift up our time in prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, as we see what the early community of New Testament believers, uh, what they did. Father, help us to be stirred to be better about the uh, being dedicated to the word and to breaking of bread and to fellowship and to prayer. Lord, I pray for a, a devotion that is spirit-empowered and not just a natural inclination as human beings. Father, we pray for your spirit to uh, lead us and guide us to become more faithful. Father, we pray for the communities, the churches in this area. Lord, in particular, I'd like to lift up First Baptist Church uh, with Jesse Wood as, as he preaches the word this morning. Father, I pray that the word would go forth powerfully, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would come uh, in power and would comfort the afflicted and strengthen those who are weak and encourage those who are brokenhearted. Father, help it also to break against the sins that so easily entangle and keep us from running the race as we should. Father, we lift up Jesse Wood and and the preaching and the whole um, church there um, at First Baptist. So, Father, give us wisdom this morning as we approach the text. Open our eyes. Give me strength, Lord. You know I am weak and needy for this task. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's do a quick recap of where we've been so far. So the Lord Jesus, before he ascended, he told his followers to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. As they waited, they chose another apostle. They sent, uh, they spent time in prayer. And as they were gathered together on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and caused them to speak in other languages, leading to a big commotion that resulted in an audience, in a crowd. Peter preached to the audience and explained to them that this was the long-expected hope they had been waiting for. This Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, that was killed. Yet God raised him up and gave from the grave, and he is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father. And this convicted 3,000 to repent and be baptized. And this launched a new community, a new type of community. And our passage this morning explains the character of this community. It's it's sort of a a summary statement uh, of this community. And so the Holy Spirit empowers Christian community by inducing us to be devoted to the word, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And isn't that what a church is all about? Being devoted to the word of God, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what the church is supposed to be. 
And, you know, as we read this, I, I ran across a comment in a commentary. I know that's kind of redundant. But there was a comment in a commentary that said this was the age of innocence for the early church. And I began to really dwell on that over the last few days, and I was thinking about it. Age of innocence. Why is that? Why would that be the age of innocence? Well, because they haven't begun to be persecuted yet. This is really just the initial base. And so in the same way that the National Guard will go and get training on a regular basis, the early church began to get training. But it's until you get the, the orders for war that you begin to take things serious. It's not until you get the orders for war that you begin to take things serious. And that's what this early church is. In fact, chapter 3, we begin to see that the temple community is no longer a safe place for the early Christians because they begin to get persecuted. And so this early church is a snapshot of the foundation before it begins to get attacked and begins to have disunity and begins to have struggles that maybe even threaten the unity and the bond of brotherhood and sisterhood in the early church. But the first thing you see in verse 42 is that they, are, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This verse sums up the rest of the verses. It is actually the, the roadmap to us moving through this passage. So the first thing we see is they devoted themselves. So based on this experience, this conviction, the Holy Spirit convicting them of who they are and what they are, they devoted themselves. And what did they devote themselves to but the apostles' teaching? And what do we think the apostles were teaching? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled the prophets, how he fulfilled the Old Testament. And so they are catching up on understanding who this Jesus is. And because they're devoted to these four things, we have the apostles' teaching. The apostles had life experience with the Savior. They had life experience with this Messiah. 43 begins to highlight the significance of the apostles and their teaching. 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe. Now, awe has more of a connotation of respect, reverence, and worship. Whereas the Greek word is, is fear. And so either way, I think we can get the same connotation. But there's a level of fear that they experienced or even awe and respect. And it says, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Over and over again in Acts, you see that when the word comes, typically to verify the authenticity of the word, there are signs and wonders that accompany it. The apostles are doing miracles because of God. If you remember Acts 2.19, this is a further confirmation that what was being taught was God's action and fulfillment of his promise. Acts 2.19, I'll read it for you. It says, I will display wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. So we see many of these signs and wonders are going to start showing up in Acts chapter 3. But these two words appear in conjunction. They're often used to describe God's divine acts on earth that reveal his power. So in the book of Acts, it's a continual reminder 
that what the apostles are teaching and preaching is verified or confirmed by the living God. This is God's word, and we are to take it seriously. In fact, we maybe should even have a little bit of awe as we approach our text. And so we are reminded of the power of the word, and this is what we have the apostles. So what can we learn from this that we too must be devoted Right? It says that the early church was devoted. They, they were fanatical in many ways about the living God. It's funny to me that there are people that will not miss a sports game, but they have no problem skipping church for any number of reasons. And I'm not saying it's not because there are extenuating circumstances. Don't let me heap guilt on you. I'm not guilting you right now because I understand I have four children, and when each one takes turns being sick, I, my wife is going to miss it often, right? What I am saying, though, is are you devoted to the Word? Are you devoted to this, to the Word of the living God? Or is this just a, an add-on or a side piece in your life? Are you Word-centered? Does your, your life revolve around it? As the apostles go on, they began to really try to explain this in, in more and more clear terms. And Paul takes the idea and explains it often. So Colossians chapter 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you, like abide in you. Let his word rest in your hearts, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so as we see that, does God's word saturate your thinking? Does it saturate your emotions? Do you take your emotions and tap them against the touchstone of the word? Does it affect your actions? And then the question is, how are you devoting yourself to the word? So how do we do this? I mean, like we say this a lot, right? We say, yeah, be devoted to the word. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be devoted to the word. I'm going to be devoted to the word. You psych yourself up. You're in front of the mirror, devoted to the word. You go home and you're like, man, what's for dinner, right? And we completely forget what it is we were trying to get psyched up about. So how do you do that? Well, first, number one, I think you must get it in front of you. You must put it in front of you. You must make arrangements. You must put it on your calendar. You must make it a priority in your life. So how are you making it a priority? Um, Maybe a reading plan will be helpful here, right? Because you can say, okay, I'm going to be devoted to the Word. I'm devoted to the Word. What am I going to do with this thing, right? You got it in your hands, and you, you so maybe you, you play the old flip flop. You ever heard that before? You flip. Why do you spend silver on what is not food? Hmm. Good question, right? And then you flop. They sold their possessions, right? We we flip and flop the scriptures until until we figure out what we want to hear, right? Or we flip and say that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply. So a consistent reading plan will be beneficial for you. Uh, making it a priority in your day. Sometimes for you, that may be getting up a little early and studying the Word. Uh, that means having a reading plan. I'm going to read through this many chapters a day and just do that. And it can be as simple as you need it or as complicated as you want it to be. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. But get it in front of you on a regular daily basis. There's no, uh, there's no reason why it's not our daily bread Right, we should make it our daily bread. Uh, second, memorize it. 
So the first thing you got to get in front of you, make a reading plan, could be helpful. But second is memorize it. As you do your regular reading, choose a passage to meditate on. Maybe write it on a 3 by 5 card or a sticky note. Uh, put it where you spend your time. That may be in your car. You have a, a long commute. you got to drive to work. you got to drive back. Have a 3 by 5 card that you stick somewhere that you can review. And don't tell me that it's going to cause distractions while you drive, because I've seen some of y'all on your phones as you drive. Right? We want to make sure we have that 3 by 5 card available. Or sticky note. Right? Put it on the mirror as you get yourself prepared in the morning. But fill your mind with God's Word. Make it your goal to think scripturally. I don't even know if that's a real word. Right? So that's the second thing. The first thing is just get it in front of you. Have a regular appointment with the Lord and His Word. Second, memorize it. Get it inside of you. Find ways to meditate on it. That, that, that fourfold um, Luther prayer method, meditation method. Man, you take a, a verse that you've memorized and you can sit in your car, you can sit at the doctor's appointment, you don't even have to open up your Bible and you can meditate on that passage and say, okay, um, you know, blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Right? That's your, that's, let's say that's your memory verse. All right? And you start thinking, okay, that's, what's the instruction in there? Man, well, first I want to bless the Lord and I'm thankful that I'm able to bless the Lord and I confess that I haven't been blessing the Lord in this hour-long doctor's appointment that is taking too long, right? And then not only that, I'm going to ask the Lord to help me bless him, right? And you begin to use that verse you've memorized, and you meditate on it. And finally, the third thing is to do it, to put it into action. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. Ask yourself this question, am I devoted to the word? Or am I illiterate? Am I biblically illiterate? Um, ask yourself where you are. Assess. In order to shore up your weaknesses, let's say you're, you're a, a sports person and you were about to enter into a competition, what would you want to do? You want, you want to be really honest with yourself. Where do I stand in this competition? And you say, okay, I have a very weak backhand when it comes to tennis. What am I going to train? My backhand, right? We're not going to neglect the other things, but so do that. Ask yourself, are you word-centered? And being word-centered leads to action. And the action that we see in our text this morning is fellowship. They move into fellowship. Verse 44. Verse 44 says, Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. And then 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So we kind of have this like peek into the type of community life that this congregation had. They were characterized by love for one another. They loved one another. So much so that they were generous. The people in the church were generous. They held their property in common. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. As Christianity begins to grow and people begin to get kicked out of the synagogue and kicked out of the temple, where are the widows and the orphans going to go for help? If you are a believer and you are a widow and an orphan, you are really dependent on the religious leaders of that time. You are a, you are a dependent. And so 
the Christianity that has to grow has to take into account how to deal with the widows and orphans. Because with no man to provide, these, these folks are destitute. They are reliant. And so the early church begins to fill that gap before the persecution happens. So it says here that if someone was in need, they sold possessions and property, and it was distributed to those in need. We have this radical generosity happening, and it's being practiced by the early Christians. It describes a tight-knit community. People uh, were more important to them than the possessions and property that they owned. Uh, a deep concern is what we see this early church having for others in the community. So we could summarize that their new union with Christ expressed itself in a new common relationship with one another. Because of who they were in Christ, because of the forgiveness of their sins, because of their worshiping this risen, resurrected Savior, they're able to give up earthly things for the sake of the community. They cared not just for the spiritual needs of each other, but also the physical. And this is an important aspect that I think we as a church want to be aware of. Now, if you look at this, they are distributing this to those in the community, to their community, to their Christian community. This is not a, a, a warrant or a uh, ticket for communism, right? Where some have said, well, Christians should be the most communistic because we should just share everything. That's not what we see here. This is not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying is out of the generosity and love for one another, people are voluntarily giving up their things for the sake of the community. So we must examine ourselves and ask, are we showing concern for others in our Christian community, in our church? You know, today, one mechanism that we have for this is the general giving of the church. And if someone is in need, they need to approach an elder and say, I'm struggling with this. We have a financial need. Is there some way that we could get help with this? And the elders may examine it and say, no, you need to do it this way. Or we may say, absolutely, we'll cover it. And in fact, we've done that as a church many, many times. But your generosity by giving to the church is what enables this mechanism to happen. So the more generous you are, the more we are enabled to care for and to share with those in greater and greater need. And we see that uh, here. So that's the mechanism we use as a church to do this, to financially help those who might have an occasional help here and there. You know, what's interesting to me is later in Acts, and also in the New Testament, there are some rules for distribution. So in Acts 6... We read that there's a certain Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews, and they were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So what happened was you had the Greek Jews, the Jews with Greek background, and you had the Jews with Jewish background, Hebrew background. They were from Israel. And what was happening is as they were distributing the goods, as it was the food primarily, some of the Greek Jews were not getting the Greek widows and orphans or not getting fed, or not getting taken care of. And so a complaint arises, and so the church had to find a way to deal with this in a way of uh, e uh, to care for everyone equally. So I already told you about the, the widows being in a hopeless situation. We also see Paul giving Timothy some really clear instructions. So 
in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3 through 13, Paul gives guidelines on caring for widows and orphans. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 13 says this Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also, so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old and has been the wife of one husband and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up her children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry and therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they are to learn, also learn, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They are not only idle, but they are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. So all of this is a guideline, right? So the church doesn't just give money willy-nilly to everyone who asks for it. And this is, I think, a concern that we as a church want to be aware of, is that often I'll have people come and knock on the door and ask for money, and I've never seen this person before. And they get very upset when I don't immediately throw down a 20 or 100 bucks to them. Uh, In fact, we had one a couple weeks ago that was on meth, came, or I don't know if he was on meth, he was on drugs, he was high, he came in and he said, I can't get food, I need food. And so Ryan, out of the goodness of his heart, says, let me get you some food. He says, no, I want money, <laughs> right? And so we, ha- we recognize that we can't just hand money out willy-nilly for whatever reason. In fact, there's a reason for it, it's for the good of the people receiving. So one of the aspects here is idleness, what did the idleness in that passage I read lead to? Gossips, being busybodies, causing problems, divisions in the church. So Paul says, if there's a, a true widow, someone who needs the help, let them first have the family take care of them. And that's the priority first. And so don't be surprised when you come to the church for a financial need and they say, okay, well, how has your family helped in this matter? Don't be upset because we're trying to obey Scripture very clearly. And so that's what I want us to be aware of, that this new Spirit-empowered community is devoted to the care of others as these New Testament Christians were. But that does not mean that we will endanger your soul by allowing you to live off of the land, I guess you would say, in another another sense. So if, if you were a, a communist reading this, that would hopefully put a death blow any latent communism in you. The new new community was characterized by radical generosity rather than taking. The goal here is to say, look, these people came to the church not to get, but to hear that we could say about that. Let's move on to 46 because I am running out of time. Every day, 
They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. The word devotion here is they devoted themselves. So it reminds us of how they were committed, not just to what they were committed to. So the means, the method is here, but also to what they were committed. So they gathered in the temple and they went from home to home breaking bread together. This new community really enjoyed each other's company, didn't they? They spent daily time. I don't know about you, but it's, it's hard to spend time daily with some people. Right? Sometimes people will get on each other's nerves, but that's not what we see here in this passage. It becomes a daily occurrence. So I love how this community is characterized by joy and sincerity. Now, some translations will say simplicity uh, or humility of heart. So this New Testament community had open hearts and open homes. So the New Testament community had open hearts and open homes. They shared time with one another, but they also shared meals. The breaking of bread here indicates that they would have met, uh, would have a daily meal together in various homes. Man, that must have been something to see. I mean, think about it. You come to church together, then you go to someone's home together, and you just spend time praising God, worshiping Him, thanking Him for what He's done, and you're moving from home to home, uh, singing songs. It's kind of like a Christmas where you have like a round-robin Christmas where everyone just goes and sings carols and goes from... Now, just imagine just how grateful these hearts must have been as you see this early church community. Paul warns the church in Corinth about how they abuse the breaking of the bread. So in this, we see almost an idealistic view of how things are going, but in the future, there begins to have divisions. The visions begin to occur. And Paul says that the rich people would get there early, eat all the food, and get drunk. I don't know if he said drunk, but eat all the food and, and enjoy too much of the wine. And the poor people, they would get off of work, they'd show up, and there'd be nothing but crumbs left. And Paul says, that's breaking the unity. That's not the purpose of this breaking of bread. And so he, he warned the Corinthians that they were abusing the community by doing this. They were coming to church to get rather than to give. So later the phrase breaking bread, of course, would develop into a more technical term indicating the Lord's Supper, but that's not what they're talking about here. What they're talking about here is just a regular daily having a meal together uh, on a regular occurrence. And as the book of Acts moves on, the temple becomes more of a place of conflict and the home or the house becomes more of a place of worship. So we see this transition that begins to take place that here the foundation is laid. They're no longer going to be welcomed in the temple community. It's going to be dangerous there. But here you can be in a home and you can worship. So they have their joyful and sincere hearts, which leads them to the final pillar, which is prayer. It leads them to prayer. And as they pray, they also praise. 42 says they were devoted to prayer. And then 47 here describes what that looks like. 47 says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this innocence of the local church, I think, is very important here. This age of innocence in the early uh, community. As time progresses, things get messier. 
I think that the way that they study the word becomes more tear-stained. Think about this for a minute. As they begin to be persecuted for the apostles' teaching, how do you think that they would treasure what was taught? I don't know about you, but if you haven't lived a hard life, God's word may seem very flippant to you. But the harder your life is, the more people betray you, the more people hurt you, the more you search the Psalms and find your comfort, the more you cry over passages of Scripture, the more precious that passage becomes, doesn't it? The more that you suffer, the more this becomes important. So as you're young, as you study these texts, start thinking about what would happen down the road that would cause me to cry out like David did when he was betrayed by his own family. What would cause me to cry out if I am called names for my faith? And so the early church here, I don't think they've fully grasped the importance of the apostles' teaching until the suffering sets in. Uh, it's kind of like if you ever have a stain on a t-shirt, like a white t-shirt, you could pour some of that little detergent. I don't know, my wife does a lot of laundry, so just bear with me and don't judge me. Well, you pour it on the stain, and you could leave it soaking for a while, and sometimes that helps, but typically, what do you have to do to it? you got to scrub it, right? you got to agitate it. Uh, in fact, that's why we have an agitation cycle in our washers or dryers. I think it's the washer. Okay. As you can see, I don't do a ton of the laundry. But it has to get rubbed out. And so in the same way, we begin to understand the true importance of the word as we get agitated in life, as we, get, we endure suffering. But only, not only that, their study of the word becomes more tear-stained. I think their fellowship is more sweet. Think about this, not knowing that as if they gather, those that they gather with will be killed that day or not. Right? Think about that for a minute. You are gathering with these people, and you're spending time in their homes, and you may never see them again. They may be hauled away and thrown in prison and executed for being against the faith. Would that not make you much more kind? To one another in the church. We don't live in that society quite yet, but I've been watching things on in Africa where they'll have church and the next day the, uh, the Muslims will go to church. So how much more would you sing joyful, joyful, we adore thee if you don't know if you're going to sing that same song with those people again, right? And we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring here in America. In fact, I would say that more and more it seems to be trending towards hostility as we go slowly towards this direction. In fact, um, one pastor said that he thinks that this is the most pagan that it's been, in, at least in our country, and it's closest to the early church time frame because we have sacraments that we have to obey now according to governmental mandates. right? And so we want to be aware of that, that as time goes on, People who cling to the truth are going to become a threat, which means that you are. But that doesn't mean we're going to be hostile, right? I don't want you to walk out these doors being all grumpy face. No, we can sing joyful, joyful, we adore thee, because he is our rock. We have nothing to fear from this world. Anyways, I'm, now I'm preaching. I guess, that's what, I guess that's what I'm up here to do anyways. <laughs> so not only that, they gather, they will be killed. They don't know if they're going to be killed that day or not, right? They're, overnight, they're praying for Paul, not Paul, for uh, Peter and John as they are uh, in prison. And not only that, the breaking of bread will begin to become more secretive. 
the early Christians had to meet early on a Sunday morning before dawn in order to get their worship in because the Romans were looking for people who were trying to worship on that day so they could execute them. So think about that. The breaking of the bread becomes secretive. No longer can you go from place to place singing joyful, joyful, singing carols. No, now you have to sneak in. You have to use secret code words to get in. You have almost this whole underground church. Think about how the breaking of bread will become so sweet. And then, of course, prayer will become more desperate. It's not until you get orders to go to war that you really start thinking about the training you received for war. Uh, Somebody has said that prayer is wartime communication. If we think of prayer as wartime communication, I think that will really increase our desperateness. So the result, right now they're enjoying the favor of all people and the Lord added to their number. Remember, it's always God who gives the growth to the spirit-empowered community. It wasn't by their skill or their smoke machines or their uh, you know, pragmatic methods that brought growth to the early church. It was through spirit-empowered community, and that's how the Lord tends to work. The witness of the early church community is these four spirit-empowered pillars. So that's the early church. Man, don't we fail to measure up in so many ways? Doesn't that lead us just to say, God, I I need you. I need Christ. I need to gather with the saints. The New Testament community committed itself and centered itself on the main thing, the message of Jesus Christ. They gathered together and devote and were devoted, excuse me, they were devoted to learning more about him through the apostles by loving one another through actions, by eating together and praising God together, this little community began to create waves in Jerusalem that would be felt throughout the whole world. In fact, what is one of the things that was said about them? Come, this is, these are the men who are turning the world upside down. A bunch of fishermen from Galilee. Man. It's no stretch to recognize that the the world is against Jesus Christ. And of course, those who cling to him will also be despised. As the world gets more hostile, I think we need to major on these aspects of Christian community. I think we need to dig in to this level of community. The beauty of all of this is that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and this will come naturally to you. This is not something that you have to do by your bootstraps. This is, as you grow deeper in the Word, you're going to want to spend more time with others who are growing deeper in the Word. It will become natural. Uh, You will become devoted to fellowship because you love other Christians. You will want to break bread together because you want to praise God no matter what the circumstances. And we see that as a Spirit-empowered life. So the question I want to leave with us is how evangelistic is that? That by living in this way that is so counter to the world, does that not attract others? As we see these folks, what do you think they were doing in the temple as a group? They were worshiping God. And how were they worshiping God? By praising this Jesus Christ. It was very evangelistic. So don't miss that here. 
Are we entering in to the temples of this world and praising God together? Are you going to the mall where teenagers will go to, to worship their idols of um, Abercrombie and Fitch, right, or whatever, iPhones and iPads? Think about this for a minute. How can we go into the world and make disciples? Well, I think it's through joyful obedience to our Lord. It's through having conversations. So how are you doing when it comes to that? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this picture of the early Christian community. Father, we, we thank you for the joy that they had with one another, the sincerity of heart. Father, as we desperately cling to Christ and forsake all other idols, help us to be vocal about our worship of Jesus. Lord, help us to uh, gather in our homes with our children and disciple them and then go out into the world and disciple more and come to church making disciples and praising your name. Father, help us to not be afraid of any threat because we are in awe of you, because we are more afraid of you than we are of this world. Lord, I pray that, we would, that you would work in each and every one of us, that you would strengthen every one of us. Father, we ask these things in the, the beautiful name of Christ, our only hope, and through the power of his Spirit. Lord, as we enter into a world that is so discouraging, and we deal with folks that seek to discourage us, help us to bubble up with joy in you. Lord, help us not to feel downtrodden, but to be, feel rejoiceful. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.